Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg, uh, the host of this uh, movable feast for your ears. And um, we have in the studio the uh, indispensable Jack Butler. And returning, maybe the fastest turnaround appearance <laughs> of a guest of the Remnant Podcast in... False. Who? Ilya Shapiro. Within three weeks. Really? I did that? Why would I do that? I don't know. I was ah, about to win. That's so much day drinking. Okay. Well, uh, we have uh, we have Lyman Stone in the studio again. I was under the impression that you had gone back to Hong Kong, um, where you live, uh, but it turns out that you went back to Kentucky, where you're from. Similar and, cultural distance from D.C. And that may be true. And you're <laughs> and in some ways further, right? I mean, yeah. Um, and you're circling back, and you're heading back to Hong Kong when? Wednesday morning. And you think they'll let you in? Is that an uh, issue? You know, uh, well, our visa should be good, uh, assuming the airport is open. Okay. And there's still some rule of law there. Some. <laughs> that's that's, that's the know, issue, right? For for your for your day-to-day life, I, I guess there is. You know, it'll be interesting to see how things have developed uh-huh. when we get there. And, you know, I... It may just be that there's there's more nights where we just stay in and watch Netflix instead of going out on the town. Yeah. Is uh oh I should tell for listeners who for some reason may have missed your first appearance, you are an adjunct fellow, an adjunct I'm scholar, adjunct fellow at AEI, and your specialty is in demographics, people, babies, marriage, family, all the good thing. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I originally wanted you on for the last one because you share a passion of mine. Um, about the the real First Amendment, which called for um, rules that would ex- today would expand the House of Representatives to a more reasonable and healthy size of some four to six thousand people, depending on how you did the math, right? Yeah, exactly. You have not changed your views on that. I have not. Okay, so not in the least. Rather than revisit all of that, um, I, I I highly encourage. Uh, listeners, to go back and listen to that episode. Um, there's a reason why I wanted back on. People really liked it. It was fun. Um, you know a lot about a lot of things that a lot of people don't know a lot about. <laughs> so you're actually testifying um, on the Hill before the Senate or the House. I am a joint. As joint happens. Nice. Yeah, a little little two for one deal. Yeah, all right. uh, so joint economic committee. I'll be testifying. I think the name of the hearing is uh, make. Family more affordable. Or uh-huh. so, one of these great hearing names where you think that's a bit. I thought you were going to say make families great again, which would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. well, that would be uh, that'd be an in, that'd be a fun uh, fun label. But uh, yeah, so I'll be testifying about family affordability, why people are having the families they want to have, or rather, why they're not, um, and what barriers people are Americans are facing for family life. Can you give a little preview of what your view on this is? My view is... I mean, I don't want you to leave it in the locker room. I know yeah, no, no, those no, things no. are crowded. I, I People it. buy yeah, tickets, yeah. but... So uh, a good example of my view is this. Uh, the price of clothing has fallen by about 10% over the last 20 years. And yet the amount of children's clothing that parents buy, the amount they spend on it, has risen by about 60%. Hmm. This is not an affordability problem. This is a wanting nicer and more clothes for your kids problem. Mm-hmm. Now, other issues are a bit different, but we actually see in every category other than housing, families are spending much more relative to the past than can be explained by price changes. Mm-hmm. Standard of living is rising for kids in America, which is, I guess, good news. Right. Um, 
But if this is impacting people's ability to have a family, it's not purely an affordability question. It's not just a price question. It's a question of expectations, norms, how many people are in the household, how many incomes are in the household. So ultimately, it's a question to some extent about marriage. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, affordability, about the work of parenting, and then also about uh, what we can do to help Americans uh, get married the way they say they want to in surveys. So – it's been a long time since I did demography stuff, but when I first came to AI 20-something years ago, my boss was a sort of famous popularizer of demography stuff, a guy named Ben Wattenberg, mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Birth Dearth, mm-hmm. was a buddy with Julian Simon and that crowd, did a lot of UN stuff, and I had to put together a lot of his data. So I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not up on the current lingo on a lot of this stuff, but I know some of the broad arguments, and I kind of had a Nightingale song moment when I listened to Bernie Sanders the other night in the debate. <laughs> talk about how we should uh, use taxpayer dollars to carry on the colonial project of restricting the growth of Africa. Yes, through abortion and birth control. Yeah. (laughs) Which has a deep resonance in early 20th century and mid 20th century eugenics uh, eugenics and and whatnot. We can get to that in a second. Feel free to offer your um, to elucidate further where I think your position is on that. But um, (laughs) can you tell? Yeah. There were some slight hints there. But um, the fact that Americans are spending more on their kids and it's not because of the price of stuff seems to me that's fairly obviously part of this larger phenomenon that – what do you want to call it? The right. People of the sort of the, – the population bomb skeptics people would argue – have argued for a very long time is that as countries get richer, kids stop being economic resources and start being – Basically, Veblen goods, right? Things that they invest an enormous amount in, that they um, they have fewer of them, and they put more resources yep. into them. And so, the phenomenon that you're describing has a downside, obviously, because it's affecting the amount of children that people have. If you think that's a good thing, and I think mm-hmm. more kids is better than fewer kids, but that phenomenon in general is kind of a good thing, no? So yeah, absolutely. We want kids to uh, to live a better life, a more full life. We want kids to. I have as much opportunity as we can give them. But, you know, there are – the United States is one of the highest income countries in the world for middle class people. Um, and yet we still – What's the highest? Just out of curiosity. Switzerland? Generally, Canada is scored above us. But part of that's oil. I know, right? It's <laughs> but it's – it's luckily, it's the part of Canada that's basically America driving yeah, yeah. it up, right? It's like right. Alberta. Okay. Right? We don't have to be shamed by Ontario. It's, um, it's the America touchers. It's like right. the rubbing off of America. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's we can tell ourselves that. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, Canada's quite high as well. And then there are a few like Norway's really high, but again, that's oil. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a number of these, but uh, we actually have higher fertility than than a lot of places that are less economically developed than us. In mm-hmm. fact, so it could be that there's this story that you just reach this level of economic development where you just put so much. On you invest so much in the kids that you can't afford to have more than one. Maybe that's not really where we are, though. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really buy that as an explanation for our current situation. Rather, there is a lot of research suggesting that um, a big part of the of how motivated people feel to accomplish their fertility desires. So the first question: Do you even want kids? And most mm-hmm. Americans do. They want about two point five on average. Is uh, well, okay. What are you, what's the benefit from having kids? And one of it, one of them is, uh, you know, that they might visit you in your old age. They might just be fun in their own right. Um, there's all these things. But at the end of the day, a big part of the benefit comes down to: Are you going to get to spend time with your kid? Mm-hmm. 
Now, Americans are a bit unique in the developed world in that the number of hours that we work has declined by way less over the last 50 years than almost any other country. And particularly as increasingly both parents work, the number of hours worked by a typical couple really has not declined. So the amount of time that you're going to get... I'm sorry to interrupt. These are interesting little stats I just want to flesh out. Is that a function of the fact that we have so much less vacation time in the U.S. than other developed countries? So other countries used to have vacation time more like us. Uh uh, And then they got more vacation and we just never got it. Right. (laughs) It's also things like paid leave Uh um, and, uh, you know, job sharing arrangements that are common in the Nordic country. You know, you've got all these different things that basically, uh, you know, like nobody in Germany ever goes to work, basically. (laughs) Um, I think their average working week is like 27 hours, right? Um, Once you account for sick leave, vacation leave, family leave, all these different leave things that they get. But the point is, Americans actually don't get a lot of time to spend with their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I live in Hong Kong, where this is a huge problem. Hong Kongers have the longest working week of anywhere in the world, averaging at 51 hours. And that includes part-time people in that average, right? So, like, your full-time average is, like, 60, 65. Right. No surprise, they only have one kid per family. Um, because, like, you're never going to get to see that child. Like, why, why would you go – why would you spend all this money when – the relationship with you that you have with that child is going to be limited by your working time, your commuting time, all these different other time commitments. Um, and if you also uh, have the secondary time problem that you got married late, so you got started having those kids late, you know, the number of healthy years in which you're going to enjoy chasing your kids across the yard is more limited. Mm. Um, so there's actually this time problem with how uh, modern lives are scheduled in the long run in terms of how long it takes us to be to where we're at the point where you're like ready for a family. But also even once you are, uh, the time commitments that Americans have are considerably greater than some of the Nordic countries that have managed to uh, maintain pretty high fertility. I'm, I'm sure everything that you're saying is true, but the argument I always hear is – or actually I always hear, but a big part of the argument you always hear is that it just has to do with the fact that women – are delaying marriage and therefore delaying childbearing till much later. And I think, you know, uh, without getting into personal stuff and stuff that my friends have been through, but there was this thing starting really in the 90s that the biological clock was a myth and that, you know, there was no trade-off involved and that you could do do it all. And it's just not true just as a matter of science, right? Right. Um, How much of it is – I mean, are they – are these – relate are are these independent uh trends or are they interrelated the delaying of yeah so the, there maturity. there is an inter interrelation here the big thing causing a delayed entrance to adulthood is delayed entrance to work which is both about education uh formal education like higher education but even people who don't go to college also have delayed entrance to work versus in the past because we just do have a more human capital intensive economy even mm-hmm. for non college jobs you have longer sort of a longer on ramp to where you're sort of a, a real adult as far as the workforce is concerned um, so that creates this delay. Um, but there are times in our life where people have choices where you can say, well, I could make this, I could take this job and just go for it. Or I could do, you know, a few more years of school or I could, you know, take a year off here. You know, there are choices that people have where they can exercise some agency over how they interact with this. And this is where there is some research, uh, asking people, men and women, uh, this has been done in a variety of countries, just a basic quiz on fertility knowledge, like what age, uh, does biological fertility start to decline for men, for women? Um, what age do you know birth defects or uh, pregnancy risks begin to become more common? You know, just 
pretty basic stats. Mm -hmm. And they're usually pretty easy answers too. They're not like going to ding you if you say like 29 and the answer is 28, right? Right. And what they find is that most people will score below a 50% mm-hmm. on this these tests. And the only people who reliably score like a passing grade are people with a history of miscarriage or infertility, which is to say the only people in our society, according to academic research on fertility knowledge, who have an accurate understanding of their fertility odds and how fertility works is people whose understanding of it arises from some degree of personal loss, tragedy, or disappointment. Mm-hmm. And that is that is not uh, that is not the impression people have. They think, oh, it's so easy, but it isn't for a lot of people. And a lot of people, and you don't really know that until you're trying to have a baby, right? So there is research uh, that says, okay, we quiz these people, and then what if we tell them accurate information? Will it change their expressed fertility desires mm-hmm. in terms of like when they would like to have kids, how many they would like to have? And the answer is yes, it does. When you correctly educate people on basic science of their own reproductive potential. Um, it does lower the age at which they believe they state that it would be ideal to have kids, and it slightly raises the number that they say they would like to have. Particularly um, if you uh, if you provide them statistics on child mortality. Mm-hmm. Now, there hasn't been a longitudinal study like following up fifteen years later. Did it really affect behavior? You know, they're, they're, you can criticize this. Like mm. it could just be a priming effect. But at the end of the day, it does seem like people have a serious gap in their knowledge. They think they can wait forever when. Like your your peak fertility is in your twenties, and uh, and that that's wrong. Yeah, it, crazy Handmaid's Tale idea here. Given how much it seems to me, again, I don't know the numbers on this, but it seems to me that the amount of time that is spent in public and private schools. One of my big peeves is conservatives who rant about the public schools as if private schools are much better about the things they don't like about public schools, when many times private schools are worse about a lot of the ideological stuff than the public schools. That said, we spend. It seems to me from anecdotal stuff I know about area schools in D.C. and what my friends say and all the rest, we spend a lot of time teaching kids about sexuality, Mm -hmm. about gender, about – you know, and some things, you know, I, I'm not against sex ed. I mean, kids should know about the risks of VD and STDs and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. But maybe teaching – 10th graders or 11th graders about that, fertility. that about their fertility seems well within the wheelhouse yep. of he, teaching human sexuality, right? Absolutely. I mean, this conservatives fought this whole battle about abstinence, um, which I get it. You know, we, we you know, it, that's an important moral value. But in the long run, in terms of uh, our place in, in society and the kind of world we want to live in, we may have been better off saying, okay, we'll concede on the sex ed as long as you also include uh, you know, actual reproductive health, not just as avoidance, right. but as achievement. Right. And one of the reasons I think this doesn't get done is because it's really complicated to explain to a kid that if you touch another human being without nine different forms of birth control, you're going to get pregnant. And then on the other hand, and telling them, however, it's very difficult to become pregnant sometimes. Right. Right. This is a complicated thing that on the one hand, you want to like there, – there's a very real attempt to like scare them straight. Like yeah. you're going to get 12 different STDs if you don't do all these different things. But if, at the, if, if you're communicating to them that it's so easy to get pregnant and to get these diseases and it will happen to you. Right. So, you know, like avoid these things. Be responsible. And then on the other hand, it might not happen to you. Right. You might really want it to happen to you and it may just not. Yeah. So uh, this is a, this is a challenging thing to communicate, but I think on some level it is a responsibility to communicate it. Seems all the more challenging at this particular moment, without wading into a whole other thing, that at the moment where it is increasingly becoming a hate crime to say that 
people born biological males cannot get pregnant, even if they identify as a woman. Um, I mean, I, I follow Planned Parenthood associated tweets sure. all the time, and you see these things about how, like, they won't even talk about how transgender women can't get pregnant, and. One could be very accommodating of all sorts wasn't of lifestyles. The reason that they just dismissed the yeah. last executive director was because she said maybe we should focus on people who have the uh, well her intended service to provide abortion, right? Right, right. Because tra- just as transgender women can't get pregnant, they also can't get abortions. <laughs> um, but we'll leave that for another time. Um, I, so I mean, I, you know, I don't want to get into that issue, but I do think that there is this question of. I think fertility education is important. I think having a science-based health curriculum requires some serious talk about it. And I think that there is a question here about how you do that in a context where talking about biological differences in, in, let's say, birth sex is to be as woke as possible, where this is problematized. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not even like we're not talking – I mean I understand complaints when people want to talk about biological differences and all these sociological phenomenon. But whether or not you have ovaries is biological. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it highly is, correlated with your capacity to get yes, pregnant. It is, it is pretty important right. for some things that a lot of people want in their life. Right. Um, and I think that giving kids education about that is important. All right. So I, I kind of steered you into this treacherous cul-de-sac. Um, <laughs> So let's go back to your original point about how costs for having kids with the exception of housing are going are generally going down, but expenses for kids are going up. Since I think you would agree or I think you said that a big driver that are cultural norms, mm-hmm. not policy norms or not policies, what policies other than better education would you propose so, to fix uh, that or address that? So I should I should clarify, and I made it, might have misspoken here. The clothes one is fun because prices are literally falling and mm-hmm. yet spending is rising. But there are a lot of categories where prices are rising, but spending is rising even more. Well, so food's like not rising, is it? Uh, food is rising a bit, especially for kids. Kids' uh-huh. food is getting pricier. Right, okay. yeah. Um But uh, um, yeah, food is getting slightly more expensive over time. Um, but spending on these things is rising by even more, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of course, part of the rise in food spending if you assume that the food for children will be entirely grocery spending, mm-hmm. then um, then uh, real spending has risen considerably. Right. But if you say – Which might be a function of the lack of time, right? Because you buy these Lunchables and these pre-made things for kids that are sure, easier. Right? Sure, it could be. But what's really going on is if – is uh, I think that using just grocery spending is probably wrong. That what's really happening is that Americans of all ages, including, including kids, are eating out more. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a compositional shift within food spending right. to more uh, eating outside of the home, um, which is even if you're buying very cheap places, is usually sure. uh, not the most eco- – now, it's, it saves time, mm. right? Lunchables save some time. McDonald's saves even, even more. Right. Um, so there, there is a real time, time component here. Another time component is with uh, child care and education. Mm-hmm. The price of daycare is rising. But the spending that parents have on daycare is rising by even more. Kids are being enrolled in more and more hours of daycare. Uh, there's more kids being put in daycare of any kind, and the share of kids within daycare who are in full-day daycare is rising. There's a time crunch. If 
got both parents working. Grandma lives farther away than she used to. Um, your, your various non-market options for care through a church or extended family are less likely to be there. Also, cultural norms about having kids being supervised have yeah. intensified, right? Yes, or Jonathan Knight point, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's a very real thing. Um, and also, there's an expectation, even if you can get a babysitter to watch your kid and make sure they don't die, don't we really want an enriching environment where our child will you know, start doing like curricular content at age three. <laughs> now, personally, I don't want that for my right. child. I want my child to be like crawling in the mud and smashing things at age three. Um, but, uh, um, but this is a norm in our society that a lot of people want. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is this good? Is this bad? Gosh, I, I don't really, I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it depends on, what you value, and I don't think we know in the long run what effect this has on society. Will it, will these kids? Is this going to be really great for them? Is it not? It's hard to say. Which is one of the reasons why the whole family affordability discussion is really dicey because you're really close to just being really judgy about other people's parenting, right? right, right? right. But uh, which is a great American pastime, it, you know. <laughs> spectating other people's parenting is a lot of fun, um, especially as as someone who's uh, who's uh, not yet uh, has. What four more months before uh, before I'm parenting? Congratulations! Thank you. So, uh, you know, there are these affordability things, but there are also policy questions involved. So, housing is a huge one where this is all a policy question about zoning and housing supply and uh, occupational minimums and all these different things that are driving up housing prices way more than they need to be. Open shut policy. There's also an educational side. Uh, educational spending is rising, and we're talking pre college. Mm-hmm. And yet the number of people enrolled in private school isn't rising. Mm-hmm. It's just getting more expensive. Right. Uh, well, why is that happening? You could look at all different things. There's a cost disease with productivity. But one part of it is that there's a huge rise in charter schools. Mm-hmm. Now, charter schools shift demand a little bit. They create new competition. They escalate the, uh, uh, the competition because they're doing something different than the public schools. A lot of people who formerly might have been homeschooled or private schooled are now in a charter school that provides similar services. So if you're a private school, you got to kind of up your ante. I mean, you got to be even more distinctive, even more specialized. Um, now, I'm not saying charter schools are bad. I'm a fan of school choice and innovation schools, but these are trade-offs uh, where um, you, you really have to have to think about the norms that we create by the kinds of worlds we build for our children. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's sort of I always try to take a step back and think about when this kind of stuff comes up is how, in a grand historical sense, right, how new all of these problems are. We have this tendency to be partly because of the prism of nostalgia Mm -hmm. to think the way that the world that we grew up in was the normal way things were done. And then if we deviate from that, it's so different than the way it used to be. But it turns out that like that time was very different from the way our parents was. You know, Daniel Borson has this great essay about basically the invention of youth culture, which basically happens in the late 19th, early 20th century because we get so rich that we could extend adolescence to a greater period of time. It used to be that kids didn't wear different styles of clothing than their parents. They wore literally their parents' clothing. (laughs) And um, and the second they were capable of working, they tended to work or at least least certainly dressed like they were ready for work. And so all of this is a little bit of sort of an undiscovered country kind of thing. So, but getting back to this idea, which was sort of of part of Borson's point, was that 
the 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 wealth that was thrown out thrown off by industrialization created this new sort of understanding of what it meant to be young and what it meant to be have kids and all of the rest. So let's go back to global population stuff. You can key off on Bernie <laughs> Sanders if you like, but uh, you know, back when I first started working for Wattenberg, it, the population bomb thing was much was still a resonant thing. People right. still. I mean, the high watermark of that was really in the 70s, but right. there were a lot of people who came of age politically in the 70s who never let go of this idea that the world, the Malthusian yep. uh, scary scenario, that the world's real problem wasn't climate change, um, it wasn't pollution, it was just that there were going to be too many humans and they were like locusts and they were going to devour all our resources. Yep. Paul Ehrlich predicted that there was going to be this great die-off and all of the rest. And when people say to you, someone who's actually current on all of this stuff, mm -hmm. that overpopulation is a real problem. What is your sort of standard answer to that? So it depends on why they think it's a problem. Some people think it's a problem because we're not going to be able to feed everybody. I was an agricultural economist. We can look at crop yields around the world. We can see the amount of cropland in cultivation. We can assess the soil and rainfall and all these things to figure out potential crop yields. With current uh, agricultural land, with current agricultural technology, with if everybody was operating under efficient management, and many countries aren't, feeding 30 or 40 billion people is not a problem. Mm -hmm. um, this is just ignorance if people think it's a food problem. Sometimes people think it's a water problem. It's just, you know, this is a limited resource. Well, you know, you, you can – there's a lot of water. It's called the ocean. Right. Now, it's salty, so you got to desalinate it. But it is there, and we know how to desalinate. We have a lot of different ways to do it, some of them fairly low energy intensity. Um, but you do have an energy problem here, right? Okay, well, we're not going to have enough energy for everybody. That's the real problem. Well, you know, it turns out we're getting good at finding new sources of energy. Uh, fracking is a recent, in a pretty recent innovation, and it's kind of – you may have noticed that gas prices haven't really risen for a while because mm -hmm. it's a new form of energy, that, uh, of energy extraction. But there's other ones, you know uh, – we're not that far – I'm going to sound like a science science fiction freak here, but we're not that far from somebody making fusion work. Mm -hmm. um, fission nuclear reactors have so much potential that we're not using. But if we can do fusion, mm -hmm. we've just – we basically have unlimited at that right. point. So there's not really an energy problem per se. Mm -hmm. The real energy problem, right, is fossil fuel energy, which is producing all this nasty stuff that goes up in the air and is going to boil us alive. Um so the big way this comes out now is – so if you take the consensus scientific view on climate change, uh, you assume all the models are correct about you know what carbon is going to do and what's going to happen to temperatures and all these different things. The inescapable conclusion and the one that is the official conclusion reached by uh, – I always get the abbreviation wrong. I think it's the IP. PCCC or IPPC or something yeah, like that. Yeah, whatever. This. The UN uh, thing. Yeah, the UN thing that does this is that population is not a significant contributor. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is if you were to implement a global one-child policy today and it was effective and it worked, mm -hmm. you would still not be able to lower emissions by enough to prevent catastrophic climate change, mm -hmm. according to those scenarios. That you still end up losing all your coral reefs, you still end up losing tons of habitats, you lose the permafrost, you know, all the bad stuff still happens. And then you get just a smaller group of people enjoying an equally bad world. Mm -hmm. Why is this? Well, it turns out it takes a long time for a person to grow up. And a lot of the climate change models 
uh, correctly suggests that emissions today matter a lot more than emissions 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. That is, the carbon sits in the atmosphere. Right? It's not going somewhere. So it, it does damage that whole time, so to speak. So a person born today is not the big problem. The problem is just the consumption today. And if you don't have a child, like let's say you're like, oh, I want to save the environment. I'm not going to have a baby. You end up saving, according to the USDA, $260,000 over the next 17 years of their life. Are you just going to like burn the money? Mm -hmm. You're just going to be like, oh, cool, environment. Let's just bury <laughs> this cash. No, you're going to buy stuff. Right. You're going to go on vacation. You're going to buy clothing, food, whatever. It turns out those things have emissions too. Right. So ultimately in the short run, the short one is what really matters here. Reducing your consumption via reducing your childbearing just doesn't work. And in the long run, we're all dead. So uh, the only solution. Big if true. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, um, so far, right. though, every generation has its hopes. That's right. Um, Past but, performance is not predictive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the real issue is uh, carbon intensity for energy generation, basically. And so this is why all the smart money in climate activism is on like research and development and innovation, because then if we develop a new energy, we can also export it. So we don't have to have a, a tariff on carbon in other countries. We can just develop a new technology and sell it. Well, actually, the Chinese will steal it, which is right. great for climate purposes. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody will be cleaner. So innovation is the whole solution. Well, how do you get innovation? More people. More people. Yeah. And actually, there's research suggesting not just more people, more innovation, but more people, more innovation per person. Right. That, in fact, market size enables specialization, division of labor, um, and innovation and entrepreneurship. A growing market enables the risk-takingness that lets new ventures test and see if they'll work. That really, genuinely, your options are either less people and a worse environment or more people and we successfully tackle climate change. There's not a less people and we tackle climate change equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Because if you get to the less people by having less population growth, that also means less innovation. And less innovation means you're less likely to reduce the carbon footprint per dollar of global consumption. And if you can't fix that, you can't fix it all. Okay, I want to come back to that in a second. But it occurs to me when I was listening to you talk, it never really occurred to me before. You could make a not, not necessarily swifty an argument that – the best way to – other than this point you're making, which I agree with, you know, about you know, division of labor and innovation solve all sorts of things. And I'm a big fan of the idea of geoengineering. We can talk about that. But if just everybody had more kids, if you think that like air travel is this great problem, you know, this Greta, whatever her name is from Sweden – Took a boat no here. No flying by plane if they've got six kids. That's the thing. Is like you just you're not leaving town. You can't leave town with if you got all those kids. It's like an anchor, right? You know, and the more and and also you're purchasing. My suspicion is is that that's a good stand-in for all sorts of other consumption. Your consumption consumption would probably be less carbon intensive the more kids you have, right? So uh, kids consume a variety of products, um, but it does seem as if. Uh, first of all, uh, higher density living tends to be lower carbon. And the way to get maximum density is to have a big family in a tiny house. Right. But generally speaking, you buy a house and then you have a family to fill it. And then sometimes you like shoot a little over and kids are doubled up or something. 
And so, but the point is that, yeah, a big family is going to be more carbon efficient because they're still only going to have one garage. You know, there's still – there's certain fixed – Probably eat out less. Yeah. You know. Um, the, there is actually a carbon efficiency in a big family versus lots of single individuals living in their individual houses, individually heating, individually cooling, doing everything individually. And then also the, the types of things that kids, quote, consume is largely uh, human services. It's education. It's health care. It's child care. These things are quite low carbon, mm-hmm. much lower carbon than the things adults consume, like uh, much larger quantities of food, uh, leisure and travel. Leisure and travel is a huge right. sector um, for this. Kids consume um, quite literally smaller volumes of clothing. Right. Um, although – And the more kids you have, the more likely it is – That you recycle. That you recycle, right? That the older kids give yeah. their kid, their clothes yeah. to the younger kids. And exactly. I mean there's there's – there's, I think, a reasonable argument to be made that fertility is actually, especially in the near term, carbon neutral, possibly carbon negative mm-hmm. um, because of that alternative consumption thing. Especially if you – I mean there's an amazing way to think about this, right? That um, – I say amazing in a remarkable sense because it's a bit mind-bending. But there's a big economics literature that when women have a child that they, are, they earn less money. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a radical climate change advocate who believes that the problem is people earning too much money and using it to consume too much stuff, then pulling that woman out of the labor force to stay home in the ultra low carbon task of human care. Now, this is probably a step back for women's rights, right? Mm -hmm. But that's what you're advocating for if you're a climate advocate. So these big families that motivate people, that motivate one member of the household, man or woman, you know, because increasingly often it is a man who stays home. Uh, this is this is almost certainly uh, a kind of degrowth, uh, a decarbonization of the economy. Now, we're not going to like advocate that as a solution to climate change or something. This is not. But um, the, this whole like, if you have a baby, you're you're like destroying the environment. It's crap. Right. Right. I mean, it was that book? I can't remember the guy's name. It was it? Was either called Fewer or Just One? Yeah. You know, and he believes that this is the solution. I, I just. <laughs> One of the things I'm always fascinated by is how old arguments glom on to new movements for the same ends, yeah. right? And so, so much of the stuff in climate change yeah. was, you know, like, for example, there are big parts of the environmental left that hated oil back when we still thought it was going to be global cooling. Um, the Santa Barbara oil spill in, what, 68 launched the anti-oil movement, and it was part of it was this anti-capitalism thing that they thought that petroleum was the bloodstream of capitalism and if you could stop the oil thing you could stop it and beneath that there's this malthusian anti-population thing but that said isn't the argument different in the developing world than it is for the developed world in terms of their carbon intensity in terms of their threat to biodiversity and and so carbon intensity is worse in the developing world uh that is it's more carbon per dollar that's because they use a lot of charcoal and yeah, wood and exactly. all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and increasingly, China's building coal plants everywhere. So thank you, China. Um, but uh, so that's an issue. But ultimately, it's a technology issue. And when you think about it, let's say China comes into a country, as they are, and they build a coal plant that is you know, five times the capacity needed for that city because they anticipate it's going to grow. Well, that means that that coal plant has been built to be there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Which means there's no economic case for building any other energy source for a very long time. 
unless you grow faster than what that coal plant was built to expect, Mm -hmm. which means the only way you get an economic case for building the renewable plant that might eventually replace that coal plant is if you grow faster than expected. Right. Right. Because, I mean, think about a declining place in America. If population is declining and you have a coal plant, do you shut the coal plant down and build a new solar plant? No. Right. You extend the life of the coal plant. Right. Growth is what enables a smooth transition. Um, now, there is an issue with uh, uh, threats to ecosystems and biodiversity uh, in some places. But again, this is actually not a population issue. This is purely a policy issue. Mm. If you look at America, we're not densely populated. We're just not. We're one of the less densely populated countries in the developed world, or really in the world. Um, and yet we still manage to destroy ecosystems left and right. Yeah. Why? Well, it turns out population kind of expands to fill the space that you allot to it. And how much land you allot for human use, whether with you know, skyscrapers or small houses or, or farms or agricultural yeah. or, or anything, is purely a policy question. It's just you make a choice about land use, you make it law, and that's what it is. Right. So if your concern is ecosystem degradation, which I share, then what you're talking about is just land use policy. We can fit, we can fit, and I believe we should fit, 700 million more Americans in with reasonable land, not even crazy land use policy. We don't even all have to become New Jersey. Um, it's just not hard, mm-hmm. uh, theoretically. Now, politically, there's a lift on that land use policy, but it's not like if population growth stops that uh, it's not like we're just going to not use the space we have. Whatever space we have that you're allowed to use, people will find a way to use. Right, right. I mean, this is one of the points when my old boss did a PBS documentary about this stuff, he pointed out that, I'm probably butchering it slightly, but you get the point that the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is one of the most prosperous neighborhoods in the world, um, had greater population density than Bangladesh, which everyone was saying is the poster child for why overpopulation is a problem. Yeah. And they're all the, every now and then you'll see someone will tweet some picture of an enormous cube that takes up most of midtown Manhattan or something. You could fit the entire world population inside yep. of it. Um, this came up recently with the, this, this freak out about the fires in Brazil, right? With the rainforest. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually, I, re- I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of charismatic megafauna. Right? <laughs> I, I, I like lions and elephants and whales, and I want to keep them around. And so, things that drive me crazy as, an, as sort of a more of a conservationist than environmentalist mm-hmm. is, you know, the plastic pollution in the oceans. I think is a oh, real yeah. problem. Acid, acidification of the oceans is a real problem, and uh, the land use stuff, which is entirely a policy thing in places like Brazil, where they're clear cutting stuff for farms, and they make this argument that. Which I think is is fair on the merits. You hear from the Chinese all the time. You guys had a chance to destroy your environments to industrialize, and now you're fixing up your environments. We need that same opportunity. And I I, I get that as a matter of, like, life's unfair that the Industrial Revolution hit us later. But at the same time, I don't want them clear-cutting the rainforests or, you know, doing any of that kind of stuff. Also, yeah, we had an opportunity to destroy our own environment, and we did a lot. And then we invented the national park system that right. every other country emulates. Right. That, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, we, we did a bad thing. 
We noticed it was bad pretty quickly and took really proactive measures to address it. And the system continues to expand to this day. So, you know, yeah, I hear you. You want to have a right to industrialize and all these things. But actually maybe learn from our experience that, that this wasn't all great and that really we wish we'd protected more earlier. Yeah, and also there's the – I mean as you were talking about before with innovation, there's a point my friend Ron Bailey you know, makes a lot, which is you know, the innovation that led to the substitution for using wood for all sorts of things. Something like – some crazy stat, I'll find it, where some huge percentage of the trees in this country that were cut down at the end of the 19th century were simply cut down for the – Firewood. For firewood or for railroad ties, the things that are on the tracks. And – if you, you talk to kids today and they think that America's environment is so much worse than it ever we have was. more trees today than we had 100 years ago. Yeah, by, by far. I mean, yeah. you can walk around places in Maine and in the middle of the woods, you'll stumble on stone walls that used to be around farms that have been yep. completely reforested. The entire East Coast has more trees by far than it did 100 mm-hmm. years ago. And this actually gets to one of the, my... I've been meaning to do the research on it. Um, it's complicated because everything is so polluted with the argument about carbon. Um, but I think everyone should move back to paper bags and get and stop using plastic bags at supermarkets because paper bags decompose. They're renewable. They're renewable. And it turns out that when you get rid of these giant privately held forest lands that the paper companies own, they don't always revert back to forest. They then get turned into subdivisions for suburbs. Yep. And it turns out that that young trees or cattle farms or cattle farms, young trees consume more carbon than old trees. So replanting trees every five or ten years in an area is actually carbon positive. And and there's a lot of habitat that can live in tree farms yep. that can't live in suburbia or on a cattle farm. The so there's this whole thing about renewable. Um materials. So in clothing, so I was a cotton guy for USDA, so I'm about to say some very self-interested things. Um, although I'm no longer, so I guess they're not any more self-interested. But uh, there's this shift in clothing towards athleisure wear, mm-hmm. right? Which is all these synthetic, uh, stretchy things, you know. Tommy Lauren has a new line of athleisure wear. Yeah, so everything's very stretchy. Exciting. Everything's got, you know, polyester. It's got um, elastane. It's got all these different stretchy fibers. Okay. That's oil. It's literally just an oil byproduct. It's just they refine the oil, sift off the top, run it through another process, and it comes out as fibers. Um, And that is advertised as like lifestyle wear. Mm -hmm. this This is like what the sleek, modern, clean world looks like having oil all over your body. (laughs) Whereas like if you're growing cotton or linen – in this country or any country, your market is being eviscerated by massively heavily subsidized. It's all Chinese polyester, right? Like mm-hmm. 80% of polyester in the world is produced in China um, as an oil byproduct of their massive refining capacity. Um, if you're growing sustainable, natural cotton, which is a drought-resistant crop that you can grow in a literal desert mm-hmm. where you can't grow anything else, you know, you're villainized because you use water. Well, it's the most water-efficient crop almost on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you weren't using it on that, you'd be using it on something worse. But uh, it's not like there's some big push out there for natural fibers when these are biodegradable. They are a renewable resource that we will right. always have. And also uh, – And they're not made in China. They're not made in China. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but beyond that also, like 
young trees absorb lots of carbon. Mm -hmm. Uh, So do grasslands. Mm -hmm. So do uh, annual crops. Actually, cotton is a tree, uh, but we just kill it every year. Um, There's an enormous carbon sink in these things, but instead we look at our clothes and we go, let's wear oil. I had not thought of it that way. I like that. Um, I mean, I don't like it, but I I like – I will – so if you need a new reason to hate athleisure wear, I have uh, given some more ammunition to the uh, cultural arsenal. I like it. Um, <laughs> all right. So where uh, where should we go now? Um, uh, where do you think population globally is going? Uh, I think that it will be quite near to the UN's uh, low estimate, which means it will continue rising for several more decades. But we will probably be in a period of population decline uh, by the second half of this century. So, um, so odds are I live to see peak humanity. Well, let's move off of that then because <laughs> we've settled that issue. Um, so one of the things you're obsessed with or seemingly obsessed with or at least interested in, I don't want to be pejorative, is the demographics of religion in America. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. I don't know if you've followed – you're following the – Debates right now between um, Frenchism versus <laughs> oh, quite closely. I went to the debate. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I was in the audience, live tweeting at the melee at CUA. Well, before I get to my question, what what did you make of that whole? For listeners who don't know, uh, my friend David French uh, debated Sora Bamari on this whole crazy thing about classical liberalism versus post-liberal Catholic integralism or whatever they're called. They keep changing what I'm supposed to call it. But what did you think of the whole thing? Uh, David came prepared to win. Uh Uh-huh. And he did. Yeah. Um, At the same time, uh, I don't think that he convinced uh, any of Amari's uh, fans that he or the fusionism he represented had anything useful to say to their feeling of cultural adriftness. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the, at the end of the day, you can say we're winning court cases all you want, but their church is shrinking. Mm-hmm. So tough cookies, that's not good enough. At the same time, the reason that, aside from being an, you know, a first class mind and a good debater, the reason uh, that, uh, that French won was because um, Amari came with no, with nothing to offer either. Mm-hmm. That is, he had no actual solutions. He'd, he'd like to hold a hearing about what's happening in our libraries. Right. But other than that, rather, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a muscular response. Um, there oh, come wasn't... on. That, that's the Redeemer as foretold as Josh Hawley having a hearing <laughs> about what's happening in libraries. Well, like, there, there wasn't anything, yeah. right? There just yeah. wasn't a proposal. Um, now, I share some of the concerns. Uh, let me take that back. I share the concerns that motivate um, a lot of the people who feel that Amari was speaking for them. That is that we are seeing a culture adrift and in, in changing in ways that are manifestly threatening to particularly people of a religious uh, bent. And that that's concerning. Mm-hmm. That worries me for the I future of my that. children. So, And is just sort of a, a classical liberalism enough? Well, in some sense, it depends on what you mean by that. So like I like the example of blue laws, right? Sunday closure laws. These are constitutional. They've mm-hmm. repeatedly been ruled constitutional. There's no dispute that you can do these. Uh, there's also pretty clear academic evidence that they increase, increase voter participation, reduce drunk driving, reduce alcoholism, reduce uh, alcohol deaths, and increase religious participation and increase re- religiosity. 
they so they're no threat to the liberal order and they have all the effects that conservatives say that they would like to see in society and yet they're just not on the radar of anybody who's who cares about this great post liberal uh, phenomenon and where we will go after Trump. It's, nobody's like, we should close the stores on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Why? Because actually, the sort of bourgeois, I don't even call it liberalism, just sort of the like, the respectability politic of consumer America is imbibed deeply on both sides of this debate. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, we will have a public debate of symbols about what's going to happen in our library, libraries, but threaten brunch? <laughs> that is a bridge too far, sir. Yeah. Um, there, there are other policies like this. Like, you know, we, we could get serious about supporting families and remove massive marriage penalties and, uh, and expand uh, child allowances, ch- child benefits. Um, oh, this is expensive. Yeah. How would we ever pay for such a thing? This, my taxes might go up or I might lose this other spending program that I love. Well, if you really think that there's this massive cultural crisis and that the, the, the plane is going down, you should spend the money. Mm-hmm. But people don't really believe that. They, they, they believe that in the language of public symbols and rhetoric. But when it comes to if it impacts their life, if it impacts, gosh, their tax bill, if it impacts, uh, you know, whether they can buy a beer at the football game on Sunday. Yeah. No, that's that's too much. Let the culture die. We we can't we can't not be able to buy stuff on Sundays. Well, I I don't know that David would have any problem with blue laws or anything. No, he, like so that, neither right? one of them have a problem with it. My point isn't that either. And in fact, I think both of them are probably supportive of it. My point is not that either one of them are manifestly opposed to it. My my point is that this is just one. And I could list off numerous examples of places where there's an actual policy that is no threat to classical liberalism, but represents the sensibilities of let's call it Amarism. But just nobody cares. Mm-hmm. They're not touching it. Right. So this, this is there's my – There's not a real motivation under here. This is my fundamental complaint about the entire debate. On a lot of issues, I'm actually closer to Saurabh than I am to David. But, but the problem is that – the thing is that David is actually making the correct arguments that I agree with about what national policy should be. Sure. Right? About what the federal government should be doing about things. Mm-hmm. Having local governments do more fixing zoning, right? I mean, like, if you could just fix, I mean, I'm more and more interested in this stuff. The, you know, the, so many of the problems that we have that that we started talking about, about family formation and all the rest, is that historically cities are where you go to find work. Yep. But because of NIMBY uh, zoning stuff, it is very, very difficult to find affordable housing and people are locked out of that job market. So they have to drive from much further away or they can't afford to be even near the city. And that has all sorts of knock-on effects if you care about climate change and all the rest. Fix that stuff, right? Fix that stuff at the local level. There's there's one that, again, this is like, this should be right up the alley of, let's say, Amarists for simplicity. Um, There is a category of zoning that many cities have called institutional zoning. Mm -hmm. What it means is basically churches, schools, government offices. So it used to be that and in some places it still is the case that if you're in a residential neighborhood and you want to build a church, you're basically waved in. Mm-hmm. That like this is essentially a service for residents. It's a public good. Yeah, it counts as it's you just you can build it wherever you want. It's mm-hmm. like basically not restricted by the zoning code. But a lot of states don't do this. A lot of states instead say institutional zoning. You have to be zoned for institutions. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of modern suburbs and you see church row. Right. 
where there's like 12 churches and also usually like four schools, right? It's like all the schools and churches um, on one street. Yeah. And you think, I mean, I get, I'm an economist. There are like clustering economies in some businesses. There aren't in churches. That yeah. There's not a clustering economy in churches. Instead, what it is is that we've zoned it that, that way. But if you believe that in fact churches are a neighborhood service and if you're if you rightly recognize that proximity to a church matters a lot and that neighborhood if a church doesn't have a real neighborhood that it may have trouble surviving then you recognize that institutional zoning may be a threat to the viability of the church in America mm-hmm. okay this is like a little thing but again if we were serious about like okay what can we do to like turn the the corner on this like century long culture war we would like to win you would talk about that, mm-hmm. but that's not where the conversation is. The conversation is like someone was mean to me in sociology class. Yeah, yeah. No, this is sort of my point is that the the pro-nationalists, to use a very broad brush, which includes some friends of mine who I think are entirely well-intentioned, so many of our problems are from thinking nationally about our problems. And Saurabh is, you know, considers it a, a national security threat or something that there was a drag queen story hour in Sacramento. Well, you know, instead of trying to take over the whole of the country and thinking that you're living cheek by jowl with someone who lives 3,000 miles away from you, <laughs> right, uh, think about the people you were actually living cheek by jowl with, right? I would be much happier if the post-liberal integralists took over, you know, Bensonhurst yep. and had a model but instead, they all want to – everybody wants to argue with the people that are living wrong rather than have an argument about how you get actual human beings to live right where they actually live. So this, this principle you're arguing for um, actually has a name and it's a, it's a pillar of Catholic social teaching it's called subsidiarity. subsidiarity, right? Yeah. And I actually – I made a comment about this on Twitter that uh, Sorb did not like uh, because – I mislabeled. I said it was distributism. Which subsidiarity is one of the principles of distributed, but whatever the case. But yeah, th- this is supposed to be like a thing in Catholic social teaching, but it, right. it's like it's it's gone. It's, nobody's talking about it. Yeah, and I, I, you're not going to, and you're just simply not going to win an argument for the Catholics to be in charge of everything in a country where not everybody, where majority people are not Catholic, and a majority of Catholics are actually aren't that conservative. <laughs> and so, it just seems to me set your, you know, it's sort of like that old. I'm sure apocryphal story about the truck that gets caught in the tunnel and no one can figure out how to get it out. And then some kid says, oh, just let the air out of the tires. What they need to do is like let the air out of the tires and set reasonable goals at local level. And there's so much of traditional fusionist conservatism that is complementary to that project. I mean, starting with, you know, there's a lot of subsidiarity in Hayek. There's a lot of subsidiarity in the federalism arguments that, you know, everybody on the, you know, the, the, Everyone from Robert Nisbet on down have been making for decades, and instead, no, 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 it's got to be one-size-fits-all policy approach from the federal government, and if only we can get Josh Hawley to have this hearing, yep. everything will click into place and we will be delivered to the sunny uplands of history. Well, and there's, there's, there's a one-size-fits-all approach to the federal policy and also to strategy that if you're looking at your state, let's say you're a Republican in a blue state, and you say, okay, Attempting to institute, well, in my case, Lutheran integralism mm-hmm. in Kentucky, which is a red state, but like it won't work, right? 
there's not a lot of Lutherans there. So if I say, well, I'm going to Missouri, man, there you go. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so like, if I'm going to try and get anything done, I'll need to couch it in, in terms that are acceptable to my local place and figure this out. But no, it's like, we need to all be fighting the battle all the time. Yeah. If you're in Massachusetts, you better be a Massachusetts Lutheran integralist, right? Right. Just nuts. Right. It turns out that actually different political arguments are going to work better in different parts of the country um, and that that's fine and that we should probably – if we want to actually win on anything, we should probably make sure that we've got arguments, that we have a, a wide arsenal of arguments for different places where different things are going to be. Yeah, different. I just think you know, the country needs more Mormons. <laughs> I mean, the Mormons have figured out that like, they want to live the way they live where they live, but they don't want to impose it on everybody else necessarily. And and to the extent they want to impose their views on anybody else, they don't make it in terms of a Mormon argument, right? right. They don't they don't consult the Book of Mormon. They say I – mean, this is the point Irving Crystal used to make is that, mm-hmm. you know, in a country you need moral uh, – consensus over morality and diversity over theology. And, and so he always pointed out that when – Utah wanted to be a state. America said, hell no, so long as you have polygamy. And then the second they stopped, I will give up the polygamy. Ah, come on in. And that was it. I mean, it wasn't like a big fight or anything. It was just like we have a moral consensus about, you know, uh, about uh, marriage between being between two people. If you can agree to that, come up with every theological justification for where you want. Come on in. Until then, you can't. And Man, if, if polyamory ever becomes legally normative in America – Historical Mormons are going to feel very jilted. <laughs> that is probably true. <laughs> um, one last sort of big picture question. The argument that you hear from the smarter sort of nationalist types, which has been an argument that has echoes going back a long ways. You can find it in Judge Bork and Irving Kristol and, and others, um, is that what America is overripe for is another great awakening. Um, and... Chris DeMuth, who I want to get on the podcast, I'm a friend of his. I have nothing but respect for him, but I have profound disagreements with an essay he wrote for the Wall Street Journal a month or so ago, was saying that nationalism is akin to or analogous to a great awakening. And he he understood the limits of the analogy. But first of all, what do you think of that? And you don't have to make it in respect to to Chris because I want Mm -hmm. to keep – I don't want to beat up on Chris because I like Chris a lot. But this is an argument you hear a lot is that we need a great awakening – do you think nationalism can play that role in any way? And do you think we're ever going to have another one? Right now, about 55% of Americans have any uh, attachment or membership to any religious body um, of any faith, which is to say there's a lot of upside potential right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that figure's falling. It was like 62% a decade, a little over a decade ago, um, two decades ago, I guess. Um, and it's falling. Uh, but, you know, it could turn around. I'd love for it to turn around. I my, uh, it is literally my job to be a missionary in Hong Kong right now. Um, so I, I believe that these things can turn around. Right. Otherwise, um, you're really wasting time. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> boy, that'd be a waste of time. But uh, can you predict these things? Well, when the Second Great Awakening happened, and it was the big one, the First Great Awakening nobody cares about because it was basically just people being like, hmm, let us think other thoughts about God while being congregationalists. Um, but the second one was the big one. And when it happened, only about 20% of Americans had any religious attachment. Hmm. So there was a lot of upside potential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, we're n- that's not where we are right now. Th- there is upside potential, but we're not at that lowest ebb. Uh, religiosity tends to not 
move in sudden shifts tends to be long oscillations. It is likely that we have decades more of decline in the religious share of the population ahead of us. Again, in the in the early 1800s, it is extremely unlikely that more than 40% of the population was in any way religious of any kind at any level. Hmm. Um, now, they might have been superstitious. They might have believed in some higher power, but they were not in any confessional or doctrinal sense at all Christians, period. Hmm. There's just no data to support it. Um, will we get that low again? I don't know. Maybe so, maybe not. It wasn't the end of the world in 1820. Mm-hmm. Um, it won't be the end of the world in uh 2120. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you know what? We'll bounce back. Uh-huh. His, there's nothing new under the sun. So just a random short question. Um, it's generally true that religious people have more kids, right? Yes. And if that's the case, why is the number of religious-affiliated people dropping so much? Because at this present time, the share of children who are raised religious who remains so is relatively low. Mm-hmm. Um, based on current rates of, of disaffiliation, uh, evangelical Protestants in America must have 2.7 children per woman in order to not shrink. Mm-hmm. Once you account for conversions in and conversions out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Main lines need to have three. Um, uh, different, different traditions are a little bit different at different levels, but the point is at current levels of disaffiliation, actually, uh, uh Jews only need to have about 2.2 because there's not a whole lot of disaffiliation. Um, but at current levels of, um, of, uh, disaffiliation from religion, you actually have to have a lot of kids to maintain. That's just to break even, mm-hmm. right? That's accounting for converts in as well. A lot of people are finding that, that what, their, the religion they were raised in has on offer is not anything of great importance to their life. Um, it's not anything worth sticking around for. That's a whole other podcast on, yeah, 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 on my thoughts gonna... on that. But, you know, you, yeah, the Amish still have enough kids to replace themselves. The Mormons do, mm-hmm. though it's falling. Mormon fertility is falling pretty fast. Actually, Amish fertility is falling. Um, what explains that? The Amish are modernizing just like everyone else, but in their own very special Amish ways. From a low base. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. All right. Well, um, Limestone, I wish we could have uh, ended on a cheerier note. Um, but it's always great having you on. I hope you'll come back. Good luck in Hong Kong. Um, and hopefully next time you come back, you can give us an update about <laughs> what's going on there or what's not going on there. And uh, thanks again. Thank you. All right, so Lyman has left the building, and uh, soon he will be leaving the country. We wish him well. Uh, what do you think of all that? Smart kid. He is. He's a just disturbingly smart guy. I think it's the clean living that's the problem, those damn missionaries. Um, <laughs> all that book learning. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I love that stuff, and um, um, I've been wanting to get more and more into the um, – the sort of climate change stuff again. It's just, it's such an exhausting topic because so much of it is, 
essentially religiously infused, but people refuse to acknowledge that they're infusing it with religion. Um, and it just seems to me that if you're going to describe the problem in objective terms, you would talk the way he is, right? I mean, like, let's assume that the carbon stuff is a real problem and that climate change is a real problem. And I'm open to, you know, I certainly, I've moved from thinking it's not a problem to thinking it's certainly a potential problem and it probably is a problem, but it's not necessarily the catastrophe that people make it out to be. Um, but normal, you know, normally when you're presented with a problem, the way you approach it is by trying to fix the problem. What I mean is if, the, if Earth has a fever, you try to treat the fever. And if um, and this is one of the reasons why I think a lot of conservatives, including me, are so suspicious of so much of the climate change agenda is that it is so clearly a vehicle for doing things that the left wants to do anyway. And so there's a lot of bad faith in it. You know, they have, I wrote about this recently, the former chief of staff for AOC said in some meeting with Jay Inslee that, you know, to be honest, the Green New Deal really isn't about fighting climate change. It's about changing the, the structure of the economy. And that's the kind of thing that you find when you start poking at this stuff all over the place. You know, the, the point of the comma wrote was that how, you know, if you look, I actually watched a chunk of that climate debate town hall thing, and um, it was awful. And it was really fascinating listening to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some of these people who are saying that 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 climate change poses this existential threat to all life on Earth, which it doesn't, and that it is, um, you know, akin to a meteor coming to planet Earth. But in no way would they consider using nuclear power to mitigate our carbon output. Which is just nuts. If you had a meteor coming to planet Earth, even if you hated nuclear weapons, you'd be laughed out of the room if you said, we just can't, we can't even consider using nuclear weapons to stop the meteor. We have to come up with some other form of deterrent for the incoming meteor. If it's an existential threat, it's an existential threat, and you organize your society um, in accordance to it. And you just, my point is, is that the whenever the proposed solutions or fixes or adaptations to climate change impinge on the sort of ideological religiosity of it. What gives way are, is the fight against climate change. Um, you know, I have no problem with the idea. I want decades more research on it, but you know, geoengineering, if we could come up with some dust that we put into the atmosphere that stops, uh, you know, uh, climate change, or if we could come up with some new, genetically engineered plant that just, you know, sucks carbon out of the atmosphere. What's what's wrong with doing that? And there's so much of the Malthusian anti-innovation stuff in the climate change debate. It drives me crazy. Um, I kind of wanted to sort of talk about how, you know, a great sort of, uh, what do you call it? What is Pilgrim's Progress? It's it's allegory. Allegory. You know, the, uh, the Star Trek where Kirk battles the Gorn, I think it's called the Arena. Mm-hmm. And the Gorn, you could argue, represents nature, and nature is just stronger than Kirk and more powerful than Kirk. But then Kirk uses his human ingenuity and takes the natural resources around him to able to be able to defeat nature. And um, that sort of uh, spirit is utterly lost with the climate change people. They, you know, they literally want to go with windmills because they a a eighth century technology. Um, 
because it, it fits an aesthetic understanding of what we should be doing rather than an economically efficient one. Anyway, that's my rant about all that. In exciting news, I saw that you have finally finished the canon of the Dune books. Yeah. Um, the last one being Chapter House Dune? Yep, the last one Frank Herbert wrote. And what did you think of that one? Uh, I mean, it left me wanting more, but not in the way that books usually do. I mean, uh -huh. there were literally things that the book ends with several things that were clearly meant to be addressed in a sequel that he died before he could finish, which is something that happens to sci-fi and fantasy authors, Yeah, <laughs> which one um, among the living should be conscious of. Yeah, it's a, it is a preview for you Game of Thrones fans out there. Yeah. Um, so I, I now I have to decide whether to keep reading the ones that were written after by his son with a collaborator based on his notes. Yeah, I I tried to read a couple of those. There are only two. The Maybe. the ones that continue the story forward. Yeah, I just kind of felt like it was. I mean, it was a long time ago. Sort of audience pandering, box checking rather than actually advancing anything. But I I could be wrong. I may have just grown out of it. So I don't know. Well, I'm I'm currently crowdsourcing this life decision to a Twitter poll, so we'll see. And I, I may ignore it. I yeah, don't know. I might be like the British Parliament, just ignore it. Yeah, result. I don't think you should outsource a lot of the important decisions to um to your Twitter followers. No, I don't. I mean, I don't really consider this that important, and I I may not act. Like I'm just I'm I'm just kind of curious what the result will be. Yeah, it's funny. Um, it kind of reminds me. There's an episode of Big Bang Theory where Sheldon decides that he needs to free up his mind from the time-consuming decisions of day-to-day -day life. And so he decides he's going to use multi-sided D&D dice to make all of his decisions for him. Yeah. And so, like, he goes to the Cheesecake Factory and rolls his 32-sided dice or whatever, and it comes up with something like a Long Island iced tea and uh, a cheesecake. And that's what he has to have for dinner. And he's, and he's like, how do you feel about that? And he says, I, I'm spending all my time thinking about a cheeseburger. Um, thinking, you know, outsourcing a lot of these decisions to other people probably would take more energy than just deciding yourself. Yeah, I'm just using it as – this is a debate within the Dune fandom of, about whether those books are even – should even exist at all. And this is just my way of gathering data for my Mentat computations about it. I see. I always thought that – um, when did the first Dune book come out? 1965. I always wondered whether or not Spock was inspired by the Mentats. But mm, yeah, probably. You know, you could see, I mean, the timing works. Oh, yeah. Um, although Spock in the pilot with Christopher Pike. Yeah. The is, cage. Is actually pretty passionate. Yeah, and, they changed and, that. And yells a lot. Yeah. Um, so there's that. All right. Um, is there anything that you wish, as a as a backseat driver, I'd asked Lyman about? Um. Well, I don't know if the fact that you you kept on. It's interesting that um, Sorab seems to like Josh Hawley so much, uh, but Hawley's not Catholic. He's Lutheran, uh -huh. which is what um, Lyman is as well. I'm wondering what. Because, like, there's a lot of... But is he Missouri Synod Lutheran? I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what those, those Protestants did with themselves after they left. Um, but there's a lot of, like... It's just kind of funny how 
Uh, the one interesting thing about the French Amari debate, which I'm mostly bored by now uh, in my <laughs> mentat thinking, is that there are some attempts to like scratch these centuries old itches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think in, in an account of, the, of that of their debate that I read, apparently uh, they they discussed which which like sect of Christianity was likelier to. Uh, Accommodates or to to be willing to use state power to achieve its ends, which they they debated about, and so I, I like that that's happening. But if that if that is happening, then Amari should explain why uh, the three senators he invoked to his side. I don't know what Cotton's religious beliefs are, but uh, Holly is Lutheran of some sort. Ted Cruz is some kind of evangelical Christian. Um, so there's not clear, I guess he's just f- trying to find allies wherever he can. Yeah. Some of them, I mean, this is unfair, but at times it seems like they all belong to the church if I want to be president. <laughs> well, uh, that's, that's every senator um, that has a, a membership of, uh, of 100 people. Yeah. I, I wish actually, you know, you bring it up. I wish there was more of that. I mean, it, it might be bad for the country to, or society or modernity to start picking at some really scabbed over old wounds. Yeah. But it'd be cool to see, what, you know, if all of a sudden some of these guys came out on the side of Jan Hus, you know, <laughs> um, or, uh, you know, said that, you know, maybe Joachim of Fjord was right about something. <laughs> I, I love that stuff. Well, I think I, I, David French had as his Twitter avatar for a while. I, I am not 100% sure which religious figure. I th- think it was Calvin. I uh-huh. think. But I'm not, I cannot back this up uh which if tr- if true is fascinating for this debate for this aspect of this, of this debate in the unlikely event that it actually goes there because calvin created a theocracy <laughs> right uh like in in geneva um which is not what david french wants to do now um well that gets at my which we'll talk about hopefully when we have um our half-baked ideas episode is you know i've been going back and forth about this for decades now about how islam needs a pope yeah, because uh, and, uh, Wahhabism should be understood as basically, and Salafism or whatever you call these extremisms, they're they're much more analogous to the kinds of really rabid Protestant groups that you had in the fifteenth century, right? Sixteenth, sixteenth, the fifteen hundreds, whatever. The iconoclasm, you know, of the well, kind of, uh, Zwingwilians oh, or yeah. those guys, you know, and the and it was a, the passion of the sort of Salafist. Muslims in the early 20th century was a rebellion against the worldliness of the Ottoman Empire. And Ottoman Empire made some mistakes, I'll grant you. <laughs> but it also uh, created a space in a lot of the ways, a lot of ways like Christendom did for different branches, different theological branches to live side by side with one another that the sort of Islamic Protestantism uh, extremism doesn't allow. And, uh, if you read – like it's amazing when you go to Switzerland, you go to some museums and you'll see some painting on the wall and it's from, I don't know, 16, whatever. And they'll say, this is the only remaining copy – this is the only remaining uh, painting by so-and-so painter. All the others were burned <laughs> in you know, like 1610 or something like that. And you know, iconoclasm is a weird thing about new faiths. And so in Islam, you know, they almost they, – they destroyed all sorts of things about – sort of old Islamic faith. They almost destroyed, I think, Muhammad's tomb or something like that in, in Saudi Arabia before they were stopped. 
And so that's why I think maybe picking some of these scabs is not a great idea. But, and it also, you know, talk about great awakenings. We could have all sorts of things happen with a great awakening that we are not quite prepared to countenance. Yeah. The, the, the old one himself could awaken as from his sleep in, uh, in Ryla. Um, Cthulhu. Oh, okay. I mean, is that the, how you pronounce it? That's how I always said it. Okay. Uh, you, you say like, Cthulhu or something, oh. which sounds like a labored sneeze. Um, all right. Well, with His that... true name cannot be pronounced. That's right. That's the So problem. it doesn't matter. Right. That's right. And if you actually pronounce it correctly, blood would start spilling out of your eyes like, Joe, Bi- like Joe Biden in a debate. So with that, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, at Jonah Remnant on Twitter, subscribe to the G-File at uh, Reagan35x.com. And uh, I'll see you next time. Cthulhu Finagan. Hey there, Cthulhu, down there in your sunken city. You're a billion light years distant, and the stars look very pretty from relay. So close and yet so far away. E-R-E-A. Cthulhu Finagan, or is that Cthulhu Fatine? I can never quite remember, cause I'm not in my right mind since I met you. No one corrupts the way you do, you know it's true. Oh, it's what you'll do to me, oh, and all humanity. All right, we recording? Mm-hmm. All right. You actually keep that in there if you want. But anyway. I wasn't recording that. Oh, too bad.